You're listening to the British GT Fan Show. This show is for personal use only and must not be rebroadcast, redistributed or used in any other form without permission. For more information about this, please visit our website www.bgtfshow.co.uk or contact us via our social media at bgtfshow. Welcome to this guest special episode of the British GT Fan Show. Stay tuned for our interview with Nathan Freak, owner and team boss of Century Motorsport, and of course, our fan and our quickfire questions. The British GT Fan Show is a Storm Vixen creative and RPS-driven media production. To find out more, visit our website at www.bgtfshow.co.uk. For this special guest episode of the British GT Fan Show fueled by TCF Sports Cars, we're delighted to be joined by Nathan Freak, the owner and boss of Century Motorsport, one of our long-serving, in fact, I think longest-serving uh, British GT teams. Uh, he's going to answer some questions from us, starting off with the more formal interview-style questions. Then we're going to look at the uh, the questions that have been sent in by the fans. And there, thereafter, he's going to face our quick-fire questions. So thank you for, for joining us today, Nathan. No worries. Thank you for having me. And Sarah is with us, and she's going to start us off. Yeah, kicking off, uh, I've been doing a bit of research and taking a bit of a look at your driving career from various places. And the first point that I would like to touch on is your first full season. Um, you definitely made an impression there in 2006. As you walked away with the British Formula Ford Championship with a very impressive 10 wins, 13 poles and 17 podiums out of 20 races. All right, so tell us a bit about that year from your perspective. Um, yeah, it was it was good. <laughs> um, we'd, we'd done a couple of... Um, we got a couple of Formula Fords, uh, Kent Formula Fords, which we'd had some success in, and that was the Jamin chassis, which obviously put the interest of um, uh, Tony Munday, uh, who who created those chassis, um, and and we were probably, well, we definitely were 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 sort of performing beyond what the car was probably capable of at the time, and uh, Tony was super keen to get to get me um, into into one of their. Juratech cars for the national championship. Um, it was actually ZTEC at the time. So, long story short, we got a test sorted uh, winter of 2005 in a ZTEC. Um, went around Donington, um, went below the lap record. Um, and then Jamin was super keen to sign me for 2006. And I had a sponsor which I carried over. Um, got a real, got a real sweetheart deal from Jamin to do it. And yeah, went from there. They were the best team at the time. The car was amazing, and I just grabbed the opportunity with both hands. And it took a little while to get the first victory, um, but you know I was quite inexperienced at the time in in cars. And um, you know, while I was racing against Peter Dempsey, who'd come off the back of something crazy like forty wins the year be- year before in the um, sixteen hundred Ken Championships, he was hot favourite. But once I got the first win, that was it. It just didn't stop. 
Hmm. I mean, looking at kind of the listing on driver DB, um, I think there were a couple of races where you didn't finish, but then the lowest position you actually had was fifth. So definitely for a first full season, just absolutely astounding. Yeah, it was crazy, really. Didn't I, We never expected it. I'm, I mean, I was the lead driver at Jamin, and obviously they had great faith in me, but um, I had a great karting history, pedigree. But, you know, the Jamin, we were racing in the Kent series. We weren't winning races. We were, you know, we had a couple of big podiums at the end of the season um, in the, the big events. But um, to jump in that in 2006 and, and have the success we had was was amazing, and it opened up a lot of doors for me. Those those doors, of course, moving on a couple of years, they, they they took you in in a couple of very different directions. And the first one was was westward and over a lot of water uh, to to the states, where you were racing in in the Firestone Indy Lights series with Michael Crawford Motorsport. Now you only did three races over there before leaving the team. How different was the American experience? The the racing in in Indy Lights compared to our own junior single seater um environment and and what was the reason for for cutting that season short and returning to europe i mean it was it was the era when it was becoming very trendy to go to america and as a british driver and you know the opportunity to earn money over there was great and um you know some real big names justin wilson you know dan weldon um making huge careers for themselves so it was something that you know, started to become um, a realistic opportunity for me. And, you know, we, we got sold the dream, to be honest, um, by a couple of uh, guys working in the uh, championship. And, um, you know, we were never a wealthy family and it was a huge financial um, gamble to, to, to do so. And, and we got put in touch with Michael Crawford. And, you know, he said that we're, we're, we're a team looking for a quick driver and you fit that bill. And, you know, we've got big ambition and we did the deal. Um, you know, we, we did our research as much as we could, but, um, you know, it was one of those things where we, when I got there, it, you, it's, it, it, it it's, painted a picture straight away mm. um and you know the first uh first race we went to homestead uh on an oval is 100 percent full throttle you don't lift ever um so when you're eight mile an hour average down per lap on a 20 something second lap you kind of scratching your head a little bit thinking well what am i going to do differently to find this speed and it just became abundantly clear that it was the void or the gap between the top teams, you know, Andretti Green and Sam Schmidt Motorsport and and my team was just colossal. Um, so we did the first race. Um, it was it was not very enjoyable, quite scary actually, um, because the car wasn't behaving as you'd expected to on the oval. Um, then we went to St Petersburg, which was a street course, and uh, had a teammate in the shape of uh, Robbie Pecorori who put it on pole the year before. Um, so for me, it was great to, to gauge myself against um, against this guy. You know, proven, proven, proven pace. I think we qualified 18th and 19th on the grid, um, and we scraped some results out in the end. I think I got a seventh and an eighth. But for me, the writing was just on the wall that you know what little money we had, we were literally setting fire to. Um, so we had some pretty tough talks with the team, 
and um, they assured me that things were going to change. They were going to get different engineering. Uh, we had an indie an indie indie test, um, so I flew back out for that. And um, you know, they did get a new engineering, but again, we were, we were eight or nine miles an hour down average speed, and I had a really brief and frank conversation with the engineer they brought in, and he said, "Look, this is going to get better." but it's not going to get better overnight. There's a lot we have to do to the cars at this speed. You know, these little details make all the difference. And uh, I just decided to um, to speak to my parents and say that it wasn't worth continuing um, continuing it because we were paying we were paying for the car to get, you know, sorted out. And unfortunately, our money was so, so precious that whatever we did, we had to make a uh, make it work. You know, as well as we could, and that and that wasn't. So it was a very emotionally difficult decision to make, especially for my parents. Um, you know, the, 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 the third or fourth race we were going to do was supporting the Indy Five Hundred, and the whole family had planned to come out and see it. And um, pulling the plug was quite difficult, but one hundred percent the right thing to do. It's it's it seems that in Indy Lights, it's the same as 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 in Indy Car, in that the teams that are the big teams that are running four or five cars and have the big, the big sponsors, etc. I mean, they could, they can put aside a car specifically for, put aside a chassis for each driver specifically for the ovals and they can set all those cars all the time. But it was almost like you're, you, you're almost paying to do Crawford's testing for them in public. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't never want to talk ill of people and Michael, mm. Michael and his wife, uh, fabulous people they put me up and and they were ambitious but the bottom line was you were going to spend a million dollars with the top team or you were going to go and spend two hundred dollars with the bottom team and uh what's that saying in life you get what you pay for that was probably the most prime example of that it's the same to this day and it's the same all the way up into into indycar the six yeah. million dollars in indycar will get you a, a fair ride and a fair team and if you've only got three million dollars to spend, then you're running around at the back because you just haven't got the resources to do what you need to do. Yeah, yeah, it's a shame, really, and mm. I learned a lot from it because um, you know I, I was relatively um, blissfully ignorant would probably be the, the right word mm. about the oval stuff, and it was a hell of an experience. Um, mm. And on reflection, it was a great thing, you know, to be part of. Obviously, hugely mm. frustrating to be there and, and be struggling in it when you. You know, St. Petersburg on a street circuit, I could make, I can have an influence on the car. But when you're on an oval and it's full throttle all the time, you know, you couldn't do anything. Um, but, uh, you know, like you said a minute ago, you know, IndyCar teams have a car specific for oval and, you know, one for the street courses. And, and this is where, this is where it became abundantly clear it was lacking that, you know, the floors weren't being changed between, um, street, street courses and, and the ovals and, and things like that when you're doing, you know, these cars are averaging 195 mile an hour. Um, when you're doing that speed, if you've got a floor which isn't shimmed completely flat, it's just like having a, a brake on the car. Um, yeah. And there's probably 15 of those things you have to pay attention to, and they and they weren't getting the attention they needed. And and the result was we were just miles off the pace. So they would trim the car out to try and get the speed back, and then the car would be lethal to drive. I mean, when I drove around Indy, it was it was just terrifying. I got in, I thought I got I got in, you know, in the pits, and I jumped out of the car, and I thought it's just uncomfortably loose. Um, and uh, you start and to you, don't, you don't want to be loose at the super speedway. 
No, no, exactly. You think about things like that, and when you start thinking about it, you know, it's all just a slippery slope down. Mm-hmm. Did you ever get the chance to do the Oval at Rockingham? Well, yeah, actually. I was about to say no then, but I I had a flashback to what I did my um ASCAR license. Um the uh rookie test. God crikey, this was going back a few years, I don't even know when. Um but uh it was in a yeah, in an ASCAR and um we spent the day with with uh, with two American instructors and it was quite good fun. But um I had all the intention of possibly doing a race race or two there. Mm-hmm. Um, but it never worked out, um, in, and, and I think the ASCAR series died pretty soon after I took the rookie test. So um, my experience of the Rockingham Oval was brief, to say the least. But one heck of a difference, um, Indianapolis in a single-seater and then Rockingham in a stock car. <laughs> yeah, the, the stock car was was actually quite interesting, um, just vague vague beyond words to be honest and agricultural but uh, I can imagine once you got yourself dialed into it and familiar with it it was probably quite a bit good bit of fun it didn't have a lot of power um but uh, I can imagine in a race environment it was it would be good fun great on to the kind of second door and standout moment of 2008 was your entry into the Nürburgring 24 hours in a Fiat 500 yep (laughs) (laughs) that sounds absolutely mental and i for one would love to hear more about that so please tell us how that was so we um i was doing a lot of work at the time with a tire company called marangoni um did some sort of development work and and went out to italy you know quite regularly to um do some driving of supercars with customers journalists you know demonstrating the tires and they 2008 the fiat 500 was released and they had a great vision of you know expanding the brand into uh you know more greater europe um and they had this vision of of uh entering a marangoni fiat 500 for the nurburgring 24 hour on paper it was it was quite a sound little project uh Engsler motorsport did the uh conversion of the car and everything was done to such a high standard um uh the only thing that let it down was <laughs> the engine and gearbox were bog standard 1. 1.1.4 uh petrol thing and it just had no grunt whatsoever um and we were sold a sort of 250 horsepower little race car and um it was quite the thing um i remember I remember being initially super cheesed off about it because, again, I was, you know, sort of this budding pro driver wanted to um, showcase my talent at every opportunity, and and this car was just nowhere um, to the point where we qualified 220th out of 220, and um, halfway around the first lap, uh, I started the starting stint that the, the ambulance car overtakes you because you got fed up of getting stuck behind you. Um, <laughs> But once you got past that, actually, it was a hell of a lot of fun, and it created so much interest. You know, guys who were driving around in GT3s, GT4s, were coming up to us and saying, "It just looks the best fun ever." Um, you know, they're all ter- terrified of crashing off, and and we just couldn't crash this thing as it wasn't fast enough. But it went round the corners on three wheels, and it had a lot of character. Um, and we finished the race, which was which was mega. If you did the opening stint, do you remember how long it was? before the first SB9 car lapped you? Um, because I'm guessing you were starting group four, so you were about you started about six minutes down on the leader anyway. 
Yeah, I mean, we I remember vividly we we qualified four minutes off off pole time, so um, <laughs> which we, isn't bad at the Nordschleife. <laughs> yeah, I think we did it. We did a twelve oh four or something, and pole was like an eight oh two, something ridiculous. Um, and um, I, I remember it. It was me and three journalists. Um, one of the guys was Jethro Bovington, who was quite experienced at the time. Uh, the other two guys, I don't don't remember them now, um, but they were quite inexperienced and. Um, typical Nürburgring, it rained in the evening. And um, basically, these two journalists, uh, one was Italian, one was German, they just said, we just, we're terrified, we do not want to drive this car, it is too scary. Because, of course, the closing speed of the traffic um, was, mm. was bonkers, and um, the lights on the front of these bleeding cars are like, you look in the wing mirrors and it burns your retinas, so you had to try and judge it without looking directly where they were. And uh, Basically, me and Jethro just back to back to it all the way through the night. We had so much driving; it was bonkers, but loved it. I'm, I'm still, and this is the second time we've had this discussion, and I'm <laughs> sat here in awe at the thought of 220 cars. You've got probably 30 SP9 cars that are probably catching you before the before the first first go through the carousel. I'm guessing. Yeah, and experience. <laughs> In a Fiat 500, 1.4 tops out, what, 112 mile an hour on a standard gearbox, something like that? <laughs> All I can tell you is I, I'm not very familiar with the um, the, the corners on the um, mm. uh, Nürburgring, but um, there's a big, long, flat-out stretch which climbs up quite a steep hill uh, through some various flat-out lefts and rights. And All I can tell you is we, we came onto that in fifth gear, and by the time we got to the top of it, we were in the third gear because uh, it just couldn't pull the skin off the rice pudding. It was embarrassing. Is that the bit that's running up to the right-hander before the, the carousel? Carousel. That's it. Yeah. So, yeah. Birdverk area, if I remember rightly. Yeah, it's quite. I mean, it's quite a steep yeah. climb to be fair. Because I remember when we did it in the Ginetta, yeah. um, in the VLN race, sort of six years later. Even mm. that up that hill was, you know, you had to go down a gear. But um, but this this Fiat, bless it, it was it was doing its best. Mm. See, I've I mean, I've done probably a thousand laps of the Nurburgring on simulator. And I've probably watched several thousand laps of the Nurburgring. I watch all the all the NLS, and I love the twenty four hours. I'd never realised that there's a steep, a, a sort of steep hill there that would slow something that hasn't got much more than hundred and ten horsepower down. Yeah, yeah, it's it's one of those things that you um, mm -hmm. you don't realise how steep it is until you're on it, and it's just just bonkers, really. Crazy place. Love 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 it though. Amazing. So let's move on to 2009, which saw you enter the Michelin Genetta G50 Cup as Century Motorsport alongside EOS Productions. Uh, again, that saw you take the championship with 15 wins out of 28 races and taking the championship by 125 points. Um, at that point, making you one of the most successful British racing drivers at that time with a win ratio of 42% across both national and international races. It was also this year you dipped a toe into British GT4 Championship with a podium spot at Donington on your first race. What do you think made that year so successful for you? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> so um, there's a bit of a story behind um, behind that. And um, uh, we, 
we were still a karting team at that point. We were just morphing from a karting team into a car team. And we had a couple of customers, well, a customer who had a couple of sons. And just before I went off to the indie thing in 2008, he said that he would buy a Porsche Carrera Cup car for me to basically race in. And we had to find the rest of the budget. And me being, um, yeah, average young, but in motorsport driver, was a little bit blinded by the lights in uh, America. And I, I basically said, look, you know, this is what I want to do. And um, he said, well, absolutely, I'll support you um, with some sponsorship. Uh, you go and do it. Um, of course, 2008 backfired massively in my face. And um, I sort of went back cap in hand and said, oh, is there any chance of that Porsche uh, we spoke about before I went to America? And uh, he said, no, sorry, there isn't. But I will you know give you buy you a car to the value of fifty thousand pound if you want to have a look what's out there um see what see what what you can come across and and the Janetta at the time was obviously on the toker package and it was you know 45 grand so it ticked all the boxes and and that's how we ended up in the Janetta championship um we we were absolutely on our ass we had zero money um to be honest um parents had just broke the bank um and it was the last sort of chance saloon for us. And we turned up at the, we did the media day because it was part of it. I hadn't done any testings um, up until then. And we didn't do any testing until the first round because we just we physically couldn't afford it. Mm. Turned up at the first round in a you know van and a trailer and an awning and, um, and won a race. Um, and it was just unbelievable. Uh, and, and the guy that, 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 that bought the car phoned, phoned me up after and he, said, he just said, this is just amazing. You know, you need to go and do some testing, get yourself sorted. You know, you can win this championship and he put some money into it. And mm-hmm. that's, that kind of turned it around. And we went from having, you know, zero money and scraping the bottom of the barrel to get on the grid, winning this race to then just absolutely annihilating the championship. And and that really burst Century Motorsport onto the scene, took us from a karting team to mm-hmm. into a car, a car racing team. And it was probably the last time you spent less than six figures on a racing car, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Um, pretty much. Crazy. Crazy how things go. But um uh I mean, that was only that was only a decade ago. Just over yeah. a, dec- a decade ago. And you wouldn't yeah. think of buying a car to race on the Toka package for less than a hundred grand now, would you? No, I mean it's a different world now. I have to say, um, yeah, I'm sure everyone says that. Actually, to be honest, I'm sure if we work at the inflation of Freddo bars, which is apparently yeah. the, uh, the you know the, the accepted measure of yeah of how things have changed, I think 100 grand's still a bit cheap. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's crazy, really. About 30p. What? No. My first Freddo bar got me changed out of a tenpence. Yeah, well, I remember them being ten p, but yeah, uh, they were ten p. Yeah, but yeah, DL. That's bonkers. So on that basis, yeah, 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 right, yeah. absolutely. Let me guess, a finger of fudge is a quid now, yeah. God, they were fifteen p, weren't they? They were. They're just they're to about seventy p as well. Madness. But. Yeah. Yeah, that's um I'm I'm picking up things that are boggling my mind here. And <laughs> the idea of bird work in a Fiat five hundred followed by a racing car for less than a hundred grand. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well the fifty five now is is still below a hundred grand, but um But the fifty five is not a young car, is it? No. No, it's not, no. No, it's essentially mm. it's a G fifty really with some with some added on bits. 
Oh, is it? Because I I thought it was a new model. So so it's so the chassis is the same. Chassis is the same. It's got obviously a new engine, um, but same same family of motors. It's, yeah, it, it's a Coyote V8, isn't it? Four Coyote. In that. No, it's a it's a uh, it's a V six. It's a Ford Cyclone or Mustang. Cyclone. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I've, I've the um I I play say I play a lot of sim racing and the GT four packs just arrived on console for Assetto Corsa the SRO game. Oh, okay. And I was tearing ass around Bathurst in all the GT four cars a couple of nights back, and that Janetta's properly sorted little car. It's you know just weirdly on the wrong side of the car. They're um, honestly, it's it's probably the most one of the most fun race cars I've ever driven, uh, if not the the mega. We'll move on to 2010, which saw you participate in a full season of GT4, almost. Um, as I understand, you didn't do Spa, uh, but that saw you take third place in the G4 Championship with a number of podiums and fastest laps. What additional challenges did British GT offer compared to Ginetta's the previous year? Um, co-drivers. <laughs> <laughs> um, that was about it, really. Um, we uh, it, the the fifty at the time actually in British GT didn't have a rear wing, whereas Super Cup car did, which is quite a different beast to drive from that perspective. And the fact it was just wanting to go sideways all the time. Um, I loved it. I just, I was just at that point in my life where I just jumped in any car and just drove the absolute wheels off it. And um, at the time, um, had a, a co-driver who, who you know, was was relatively steady um, in comparison to uh, to the other co-drivers. And um, often I'd get back in the car at the at the you know, halfway mark and be half a lap down. I have to make thirty seconds up and. It was quite nice because I'd jump in it and I would. It, the grids back then weren't huge. You know, you had four or five cars, and I'd, you know, in a two-hour race, I'd jump in the car. You know, I'd drive absolutely qualifying lap every single lap of the race. I didn't see another car other than GT3s, mm. and then three or four laps or five laps from the end, you start to get a sight on the car in front of you, and um, it'd always be a last corner lunge to get on the podium. But um, it worked out, and in, in a way, it was quite a rewarding sort of year from that point of view that um, we were always having these outside uh, results um, at you know, the dying deaths of the race. And on the subject of results that were possibly a bit unexpected, 2012 return to, to the Nordschleife for the, uh, for the uh, 24 hours of the Nürburgring. This time in something with, I think it's fair to say, a bit more oomph. Than the fear, uh, <laughs> yeah. the the Jaguar XFS, the the diesel Jaguar. It was the Carvel car, wasn't it? The, the That's right. Yeah. Car. Um, I mean, my all time favourite. We've built it ourselves. Race car. That, and um, I've got a fantastic photo of it entering the gravel trap at Cops sideways, spraying <laughs> gravel. Um, did Did you guys do the twenty four hour races at the Brick Car twenty four hour races? No, we never did. No, uh, we had we had one where, I mean, my weather app told me it was going to hoof it down, and I looked out the media centre and thought, "Nah, weather app's wrong," and came back looking like a drowned rat. <laughs> <laughs> but the Jaguar yeah. tried to do an extra lap on slicks and missed. Oh uh, <laughs> right, okay. But you've um, see, so you returned to the Nurburgring in in the diesel Jag 
one year class. Yeah. Um, very different to, to the previous time there. How did the, the two races compare? I'm guessing it's sort of like chalk and cheese, night and day stuff. Yeah, it was a little bit. So I did did the race in the Fiat 500, loved it. And um, I'd done no, it, that, that was a real rush through to get my license. And uh, um, so I'd never done anything at the ring before that. And it wasn't really until the dawn stint in the Fiat 500 that I really knew where the track went, you know, enough to push 100%. Mm-hmm. Uh, finished that race and, and then you know, didn't do anything at all until four years later in this jag so jump in it and it's like i'm a fish out of water um because i didn't know i forgot about the circuit when and um you know the jag was 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 considerably quicker than the fiat 500 so took a bit of adjustment to get to get myself back in the zone with the um with the circuit knowing where it went um but the car was mega uh really enjoyed it great bunch of guys um had some funny moments where um I was out doing a stint. I think we could do seven laps on a on a tank of fuel, and um, yeah, I'm a typical race driver. I'm not counting how many laps I'm doing, and get halfway around the lap, and I've run out of fuel. So phone, you know, we've got a mobile phone in the car um, because the radios don't reach that far. So you just pull over, you phone them up, right? Off, off, cars can't tell. They tow you back to um, to wherever, put some fuel in it, and it wasn't just a normal car. You put fuel in it and start it up. You had to get a program and. Um, reset all the all the errors anyway i didn't think anything of it came back in um did the driver change went back out uh, the other guy went out and and then the next stint same thing happened but i, I knew i was going quicker because i got further around the lap this time almost made it to the end and i was like <laughs> what's going on what, why we run out of fuel and basically the team were falling asleep in the pits and forgetting that i was you know going around on my own so mm-hmm. they didn't call me in on the right time and um and yeah, I ran out of fuel twice, but it was it was super chilled out, super relaxed, lovely bunch of guys, you know, real real enthusiasts, and we just had a ball, an absolute ball. And there was only it was me, Colin White, and Rob Rob Carvel, and um, so there's only three drivers, which when you're in a 24 hour race, really make the difference between three and four drivers on cir- circuit time that you get mm. is a massive difference. So we just had oodles of track time. The car behaved itself, and and we won our class, which was which was a great great result. The, the three the three driver thing. I'm, I'm guessing you got well saying that the the previous time you did it, nobody would drive during the night apart from you and one other. But I'm guessing you got a lot less rest on the three drivers, but not not just because you were having to do that extra what would it be two hours driving. You'd have to take the two of the four fourth drivers six exact hour. Six hours. I'll get my yeah. words out eventually. But the the driving time regulations over there are quite strict, aren't they? In the is it, yeah. is it two hours and then you've got to have an hour off or something like that? Something like that. Yeah, I, we never we never approached that um, that regulation. We weren't in danger, in danger of it actually, but um, but yeah, I do remember it being busy. Mm. Um, we had a similar situation this year in Dubai where, where it was only three drivers in the car, and that that was busy up until it was red flagged. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it, it, I mean, as a racing driver, who doesn't want to be in the car as often as possible? So it was, it was absolutely mega. Yes, and I'll say my my shining recollection of of that car and that effort in everything that I saw them racing is they're just the quintessential endurance racing people. They've built the car and they just want to go out and race their car and race it round the clock twice, and then they'll go out and race find another time. Race where yeah. they can race around the clock twice, and yeah, there's pro- pro- proper passion for the sport. 
Absolutely, yeah. And that car really was their baby as well. So it was nice. I enjoyed it. And it, it looked brilliant. It did, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it did. It was a good bit of kit. It had um, had some interesting brakes on it. Um, but other than that, it was a well-sorted bit of kit. So thereafter, you seem to have moved more into a to a team management role. We, we've, we've obviously seen you do a couple of full seasons in British GT with, with various co-drivers. Um, you did a season with Anna Valeska, didn't you? Yes, that's right, yeah, yeah 2016. 20, 2016. But you, you, you've been moving more into, into the management side of things now. So how's that been with the, the migration away from driving and into into your new role um well quite natural really um i mean sort of on the face of it uh, it looks probably like a new role for me but i've you know i've worked in century motorsport ever since i left school in 2000 and my job when i wasn't racing was was looking after drivers again even in carts so um obviously responsibilities have become more and as the team's grown and uh i've had to manage more and more staff and you know and whatnot but um it's been quite a natural progression for me and and i enjoy it uh it's stressful it's busy uh sometimes can be a little bit thankless but when you get when you get the result it it's almost as good as winning the race yourself when you're in the car mm. i mean it's not stopped you having kind of a bit of fun and drive time out because um looking through as well did see uh, you do turn up to Dubai 24 hours quite often. I think every year since 2016, yeah. uh, where you did win on your first attempt. Yeah. Um, and you've kind of been there every every year since, including this year where it was a bit wet, to understate a little bit. Yeah. Um, yeah, that was interesting. Yeah. Um, I mean, that for me uh, was kind of one of my first races back into kind of getting back into motorsport. Um, where I ended up round at Nick's house, kind of watching and watching the rain come down and going, uh, <laughs> this isn't good. Mm. Um, so tell us a bit about that race and the experience. And obviously you don't think of Dubai and that kind of weather. Um, so had there been any plans for it? And just generally, how how was that? Yeah, it was interesting. We We actually knew from the start of the week that it was going to rain. And, and on reflection, actually quite boggles me that we didn't well the organizers didn't react a little bit to it you know we, we probably would have had the time to bring the race forward 24 hours and we would have got away with it mm. um, but we knew it was coming and we knew it was going to be bad and we knew that dubai floods near the track um and uh and we set off on the race and you know we had the strongest team out there there's no doubt about it the car was great um you know we were running first comfortably um we were running first and second actually um and uh um then 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 it was wet then it was dry then it was wet and we were staying out on slicks and we were boxing for wets and it was all getting quite interesting mm. and um unfortunately we we boxed we boxed to a driver change um and uh um it just the the, the sequence of pit stops meant that we lost the lead um, because the code sixty came out and, and and the car in second boxed and and got a free pit stop and, and then that that was it the race was red flagged and we you know from li- basically leading the race for most majority of the seven hours we uh, we ended up th- third which was a bit disappointing and our sister car finished second um, mm-hmm. which was gr- you know great great result but it was just bonkers um, I I went back to the hotel I don't usually do that but. Um, 
I knew it was going to be a lengthy red flag, and I just said to the guys, "Look, you know, I'm going to go and get my head down, and um, I'll, uh, I'll I'll speak to you in a few hours." Anyway, because I have a the team manager app on my phone, I could keep up to speed with mm. what's going on. So I'd wake up every now and then, check it. I was still red flag, go back to sleep. Anyways, in the morning, I woke up to the message that the race was was cancelled. Came back to the track, and it was it was like Armageddon. I've never seen anything like it. And the guys and girls who you know the century century crew just said this. It was biblical rain. They you know to it was sort of race that probably will go down. You know you'll never forget that you were there yeah. for, that, for that one. Um, uh, bonkers, absolutely bonkers. Um, so disappointing that it didn't finish, go through the whole 24 hours, but, you know, we got a podium, we did get a pot, and um, there was nothing anyone could have done about the, the weather. Yeah, I spoke to um, I spoke to Trussers at um, British GT Media Day at, at Snetterton, which was um, just enough time for him to dry out afterwards because he was, he was calling strategy for one of the SB9 cars. And he was saying how you know, they, they they red flagged it and they parked all the cars up. And then there was a call for people to come and move the cars because they were filling up the water. Yeah. Uh, and then the water got into the garages and it was running around because all the plug sockets were on the ground and they had to get them off the ground and this, that, and the other. And it's, he was saying how it's, I mean, they knew the rain was coming, but they they, they never thought it was going to be that bad. And yeah, no, that's it. My, my guys said that they were all, you know, they'd all gone to sleep on the garage floor. Uh, and then all of a sudden they could just hear this screaming and shouting um from a couple of garages down they they woke up put the lights on they said it was coming through like it was like a tsunami just coming through the garages and just washing stuff away and then all the electrics that blew up on the um uh on the circuit and there was a humongous bang and they all had to go upstairs into the costa uh, cafe and and sleep on the floor up there so it was just crazy um actually quite scary it seems to be the year for extreme weather at the 24-hour races, though, doesn't it? Because they had very, very long red flag at the ring this year as well, didn't they? Seems to be the year for extreme things. Let's <laughs> <laughs> just say it's not just the racetracks. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, one track, well, several tracks, but one subject mind. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So obviously, you've you've said you've been involved in karting. You, you've been involved in in single seaters. You've been involved in GT racing. But I've also seen around the internet you saying that really you're a Toyota man at heart. <laughs> and yeah. the other type of racing you've done is is drag racing. And you you're a bit of a, a celebrity in the uh in the drag racing world as well, owner of the world's fastest Toyota MR2. Yes, that's right. Tell, tell us a little bit about this project because um it's the second one you've done, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Um, so it's a bit of a strange, strange way of getting into it. Um, I had a Toyota MR2 road car, uh, and I started doing some modifications to it as a you know young, young lad would. And um, I just must have got invited. I think I was part of a car group, and they were going to Santa Pod for a you know a day out. And I thought, mm-hmm. yeah, that sounds good. I'll go and run the car up there and um did like a for for what the car level for the level of the performance of the car I did an amazing time for it and uh, got quite a lot of interest off it and then I just got the bug so that car evolved from a road car into a race uh, into a drag car 
and um, 2009 we broke the world record back then uh, with a 9.7 pass uh, for the world's fastest MR2 and um, I was actually trying to sell the car at the time um, I sort of sort of decided I'd had enough of it and uh, we've been down to race car live at Brands Hatch and um, we just put the car on display there and on the way back it was involved in an accident um, on the M25 which ended up writing the car off um, so it was a bit of a uh, upsetting way to to finish it and mm-hmm. um a little bit of nostalgia um just got us back doing another one we had a, an mr2 challenge car which we had converted from a road car to to mm-hmm. help get people onto their national a license so they could you know race with us in the genetas or british gt and um it, it it served a purpose for a few years but then it was just sat in the corner of the workshop um, you know, a little bit of a white elephant in the room, and I said to uh, to my old man, you know, what we're we going to do with this car? It's worthless to sell. Um, you know, what should we do with it? And and then that was that spawned the idea of turning it into another drag car. And the and devil makes to... work for idle race cars. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, pretty much. So we documented the entire build and did it properly. As, you know, costed it all out and spent probably triple what we costed out. Um, but I love it. And uh, it's a great marketing tool for, for you know, we, we're a UK distributor for some engine parts and it's a great marketing tool for it. Um, and I just, it's just, it's almost like a bit of a guilty pleasure. Um, I, and I, I just absolutely love it. So just over a thousand horsepower it's running, isn't it? Yes. And is that running on, as the Americans would term it, pump gas? No. No, is it? It's not nitro fueled. It's not top fuel. No, it runs on uh, methanol, um, and it has a five percent mix of nitro paraffins in. So um, it's quite it's quite a volatile fuel. And the 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 photo that I've seen of it, the front wheels are really just there for show. (laughs) Yeah. So um, when you actually break it down, a Toyota Mar Two is possibly one of the worst drag cars you could choose to build because of the weight distribution. Um, on the road, it's fantastic, loads of grip, loads of traction. But you know, on the drag strip, when you've got these big, big, fat slicks, um, grip's not your issue. Uh, weight distribution is. Um, so whilst it pops wheelies left, right, and centre, that's actually not a good thing for it to be doing. And we've been working really, really hard on keeping the front down on the launch, which we've we've, we've got to got to do now. Um, sort of against all principles you have to add weight to to it um which you think would slow it down but it's obviously adding it in the right place and it's it's really helping the, the times yeah it's um it's like uh audi's engine person said is it Ulrich Beretsky that designs audi's engines and he was I saying that, that noise is wasted energy yeah I suppose it's the same thing lifting the front of the car up yeah is is energy that's being used to lift the front of the car which could be used to push the car forward yeah, it's it's funny. I mean, um, you're dead right, and um, but people sort of on on the internet when they see the videos of it, oh my god, you know, it's pulling a wheelie, it's so fast, you know, moon tune and all this sort of stuff. And then you do a video of it not pulling a wheelie, and oh well, that looks that looks rubbish. It's not pulled a wheelie; it looks slow. And actually, we've done our fastest sixty foot by quite mm-hmm. considerable chunk. So um, yeah what looks good isn't always the right the right thing uh, isn't all true it's the fastest thing so are you still developing the car then do you have a have a target to make it faster or is it um initially it was eight seconds 
Yeah. And initially it was eight second pass, make it reliable mm. to do eight. And we achieved that last year. Um, and now we've added more power. Um, I mean, developing it, yeah. We are always developing it because it just breaks all the time and you're just moving the you know, moving it to the next weakest link. But we're in uncharted territory. Um competition for it, believe it or not, is very, very high at the minute. Mm-hmm. Um and um we just uh I guess we wanna get to the point where we feel like we've maxed it out um and we've reached the limit limit of the chassis. Uh, I think that limit is gonna be a very, very low eight possibly a high seven um but 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 we're still working towards that i mean that that's i I don't know a massive amount about drag racing um i kind of know you don't turn left or right during it (laughs) you'd be surprised that's about about it but looking at, at some of the uh the records that i've googled um i mean to get below seven seconds most of these are jets or top fuels. Yeah, it's quite funny, really. I take it for granted. Um, but you know, we recently we've been doing a lot of private track days where we, you know, someone hires the track at Santa Pod and um, you, know, you get like 80 or 100 cars. Or, you know, if you go and do a run what you brung where it's just mm-hmm. public, it's always the fastest car or it's in the top two or three. Um, you know, and you've got some huge American muscle cars there and some, you know, some, some high horsepower Japanese cars you know, or German cars. And the R2 is always the quickest. Um, so it's really got quite, quite an interesting following at the minute. Um, you know, social media, it's, it's funny. I'll share a post on Century Motorsport and I'll get, you know, 50 likes or something. Share a post of the MR2 popping a flame out on the dyno or pulling a wheelie and it's like, you know, twenty eight thousand views on on the videos and and you know three or four hundred likes. So it's something that people enjoy seeing. Uh, it's very different. It's it's in your face. It's it's loud. It's gnarly. Um, so it's it's quite cool. It's nice. I, I really enjoy it. And I understand you've been hands on in every aspect of the build as well. Yeah. So I I've done everything on it. Um, I say everything. Um, yeah, I have done everything. I've had some specialists help some from some some really really great people who have um you know like uh, the guy who painted the car or the guy who helped me with the wiring. But you know, there's not one bit where I haven't been present on it. Um, you know, even I was in the spray booth when it was being painted. Um, and uh, um, sometimes I get the guys to do some work on it uh, in the workshop if we're really busy. Uh, I'm really busy in the office or, or out in meetings. Mm. I'll get them to pull the gearbox off, but. It's my baby, really, um, and it's a very complex car. Um, a lot more probably than it looks on the outside. Um, so it's been quite a quite an engineering masterpiece for me to to get my head around and and you know figure out some solutions to some very difficult problems. I have to, I have to say, if I was wrenching for you on on one of your Genettas or your BMWs, and you said, "Hi, oh, Nick, can you do an oil change on the drag car?" I'd be bricking it. <laughs> don't lay hands on the boss's baby <laughs> yeah it's it, you, you, you've got a good point there actually i think the guys um the guys now are a bit more familiar with it but at first it was you know, it's a bit alien to them um and and yeah it's is there anything transferable from drag to circuit racing um yes and no you know vehicle dynamics um the the mr2 essentially behaves similar to a race car in, in the way you do a setup change um you, the way the, the theory behind it 
for, for drag racing is a little bit different. Um, you know, and then systems controls with ECUs, that's quite similar. Um, but it's it's one of those things where it's it's technical, um, but it's also not technical <laughs> because mm-hmm. You know, race car, you'll go out and you'll do 10 laps, you'll come in, you'll do a roll bar change, and you'll go out and you'll do another 10 laps. Where you have that theory or process with a drag car, you just can't get that repeatability out of it. Um, so it's kind of like just throw things at it that you think are going to work um, and just hope for the best um, because, you know, no two runs are the same in the MR2. So doing one click of dampers here or, or a ride height change just doesn't have the same effect or repeatability that you would expect on a race car. Interesting. Interesting. Right, we've gone very deep into to a subject here that we hadn't intended to go very deep into, but I'm fascinated. By, but we might have to leave the MR2 and I'll find you in a garage at some point when you're not yeah, busy and have a chat about it. <laughs> so let's bring it back to a bit more about Century Motorsport as a team and your role as team boss before we move on to our fan questions. So first up... Century Motorsports celebrating its 25th anniversary this year. So congratulations, firstly, on that. Thank you very much. Uh, where did the inspiration for the team name come from? What's the story behind that? Um, so back in the day when Century Motorsport was... Century Motorsport was a vehicle to uh, help pay for my racing. Um, we were doing TKM at the time, and uh, we were starting get, starting getting some good success. Um, we'd become agents for... Well, my dad basically saw a, an opportunity to to help pay for my racing um, mm. people were coming and asking what tire pressures you were running or what sprocket we were on and can you help with the carburetor rebuild and started very very small and the name century came because the class tkm at the time was 100 cc so 100 cc century yep um and it was century race preparation originally um then it tried, moved to century motorsport in the early 2000s so it's quite a quite a simple name, um, but obviously we've carried it through uh, through now, and it's not very relatable to what we do currently. But it's 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 who we are. Yep, absolutely. And I've personally got like a bit of a fascination with where names come from and origins of things. So it's a question I'll always ask. Yeah, no, there is there is there is method behind it. Method behind yeah. madness. So there's always a story behind why you why you choose a name. Now. Obviously, we've 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 been through through your history, and you've got a massive amount of experience behind the wheel of a car. How much does that experience behind the wheel of the car help you in your role as a as a team boss in terms of the decision making and and the way that the engineers and the drivers are relating to each other? Conversely, how does your experience as a team boss affect your driving decisions? Do you? Does it run through your head when you're about to make that move for, for the leader of the class? Uh, if this goes wrong, that's going to be 500 quid for a bumper and a thousand pounds for a bonnet. <laughs> um, I'll answer the, the second question first. Um, it doesn't really, from that point of view, it doesn't run through my head. Uh, I've never, never thought about sort of, um, the only time I've ever thought about, you know, damage and costs was when I was doing the Indy lights thing. Um, but you know, first when i'm racing under the century banner i don't think about damaging the car but what i have found and one of the reasons why i don't race really so much anymore under you know other than dubai is that i i don't focus on my racing i'm focusing on 
on other things, you know, and if we're in a two car team, I'm worried about the second car. What what's happening to them on track? Have they had an issue? Mm-hmm. You know, team boss's worst worst fear is the car stopping on track always. You know, mechanical issues. Um, and I just found that it, I didn't focus on the job in hand, and, and it then took away from my from my my speed really. And uh, um, that was one of the reasons I haven't stepped back completely, but that's one of the reasons I, I certainly don't. I'm not as forward in being out in the car as, as I used to be. Um, but to answer your, your original question, it's very, very handy. My, I can fall back on my experience a lot with um, it's instinct for me. So, um, you know, I'm I'm the kind of team owner that um, I don't micromanage. Um, I'll let the guys do what they want to do until I think it's wrong and then I'll intervene. Um but um, in live situations on on the, on the pit wall in races, uh, I've got a real instinctive nature to to, to sort of almost like a sixth sense. Um, and um, the engineers sort of really like having me around because I'm I'm a, I guess I'm a bit of a um, a sounding board for their ideas, and and usually, um, you know. I, I understand what's going to happen and um, and can make quick quick thinking decisions off the back of my own experience. Um, and likewise, if the, you know drivers are struggling with the car and you know the, the, it's not getting through with the engineers, um, I can be the the translation between the two. Um, so it's quite a multi layered role, but mm. me racing and my experience is definitely a big help towards that uh, towards that role. So do you appoint or hire a, a like a team manager to run the effort at Dubai when you're driving or Yeah, so um British GT and and the long endurance races we hire a team manager to do it. Um I mainly because um I guess it's not my natural forte. Um so I'd got to the point in you know 2013 2014 where I was doing that job uh, and often I would get sidetracked with, um, you know, other issues that, um, which took my focus off it. And also we needed to push the team forward. So uh, we brought in a, you know, very reputable, um, team manager and, um, and, and, and he sort of runs the ship at the weekend. Although, uh, you know, often, well, always the buckle will stop with me if there's an issue. Um, you know, I'm always, I'm always, uh, consulted uh, with the solution and um obviously customers will always chat to me direct um but also you know we don't just run the british gt program we run other programs on other championships yeah. and um <clears throat> i can't be in two places at one time so not being not having a dedicated role at british gt can mean that i can actually not be there on a weekend and um and get away with it um so it works well from that aspect and also when we go to dubai i can just be a driver and not have the hassle of uh, of you know having to organize uh, everything else so speaking about um the fact that you do have more than just british gt under your belt 2018 was a really successful year for you across the board at century yeah uh, he had five championship titles including british gt uh, with gt4 teams and drivers uh, you also had Janetta. GT5 Challenge teams and drivers and the Janetta GT4 Super Club AM class. Yeah. Uh, what do you think made that year so successful for you? I don't really know. Um, we just had a really great crop of drivers um, and 
sometimes you get these these drivers through your hands and and you know they do make the job so much easier um you know we've got a couple of guys this year who are just you know f- unbelievably quick and um it's just a pleasure to work with them and it's nice to be part of that of that uh, you know of their journey and there's nothing nicer to see these kids go on to to bigger and uh, and better things and 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 say that you've had a hand in their development um and 2018 was just one of those years you know we had some <laughs> fantastic fantastic drivers um we just did a good job with the car made sure it was how they wanted it and made sure it was reliable and 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 they did the rest because you, you say about this year the we can see that the guys in the car andrew uh, etc that we know they're they're quick drivers they are they are top draw silver drivers and we know the car has obviously got performance and pace because it wouldn't have taken the title in 2018 if it didn't it seems like this year is not coming together though is there a is there is there a reason why the performance hasn't quite added up to the sum of the parts that's going in um yeah it's been a tricky year to be honest um we've been a little bit off the pace and um you know working hard with the drivers to get the pace we've had some unlucky scenarios we we did get a podium at brands with with ben green and andrew and that was that was great um um yeah easy easy to talk about the bop everybody talks about the bop but i do genuinely feel that we're probably not quite there um so it's just feels like we're on the back foot and we have we've struggled to get on an even keel um we've had a bit of a reset since netherton that was a difficult weekend for us um and uh and silverstone i hope we can bounce back and have a good result there's some quite exciting things in the pipeline for 2021 you know for the for the car i believe um so um yeah strange one strange one not quite figured it but um We'll bounce back. Uh, there's no doubt about it. Yeah, so it's uh, it's it's caught me slightly by surprise because we've got great team, great car, great drivers, and um, I say we do. I, I I do really hope that next year is is another successful year for you for for, for you guys. Yeah, it's funny. GT World's quite funny, isn't it? And um, mm-hmm. you know, often it takes. Um, takes a bad year for you to focus and 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 bounce back and uh, like i say you know we're all putting the effort in you know we've we've got lots of data and and what and uh set up to fall back on mm. um but for whatever reason we're just not we're just not getting it together um and it i don't know why um but um it's it's been a bit of a turbulent turbulent year with driver drivers swapping and um uh continuity um so it all adds up, doesn't it? And um, you know, British GT this year has taken a bit of a hammering on the grids. Mm. Um, what it's meant for GT4 is it's gone from a grid of, say, sixteen cars where there's a huge spread of uh, pace to a grid of seven cars where the level is very, very high. Um, you know, the drivers mm. are all you know very, very quick, and and it's magnified any flaws. Um, whereas you know, you if on a bigger grid with a bigger bigger spread of speed, um, you know, it's not as not as magnified. So, so we've we've been looking at the, at the same thing, but from from the different angle. In that, 
the effect that it's had on Mia and, and Ewan in the Balf car. Yeah. The only pro-ams in a field yeah. full of silvers and, and, and how it's affected them. But of course, when you've got that high level and it is an, an, basically an entirely silver cup class, it doesn't take a very, may, a, a, a very, very big one thing being not quite right to, to, to show in a, as, a, as a lack of pace, does it? That's that's exactly it, um, and uh, it's, it's it's sometimes can be a bit of a slippery slope because um, you know you could completely understand as a, as a single pro entry if they didn't finish the season or you know if the numbers were small people dropping out, um, which is a shame. But you know it's the seat the, the grid is sustained throughout the year, and I think Silverstone's looking better, um, which is good. Um, as you said earlier, twenty twenty is just a very strange year. So, uh, in some cases, it's a bit of a case of yeah, let's see it through to the end and and hit a massive reset button for twenty twenty one. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think we want to to take a look at some of the fan questions now, don't we? So, so do you want to start us off on that? Yep. So first up, we've got a name that is no doubt familiar to you, Nathan uh, Ben Tuck. Yeah. Asked. How did you end up switching from Janetta to BMW? What was the process around that? Um, <clears throat> so we we'd obviously you know we run the Janettas on the Toka package. We still do, um, and we'd run the Janettas in a British GT. And um, yeah, the two cars, the difference in driving the two car, the Super Cup car and the GT car, they were quite different. And you could just it felt from our point of view that the, the writing was on the wall. Um, the, the, the amount of lead that was going in the car it was became quite difficult to drive. Mm. And the way that Janetta generates the lap time, um, you know, it's it's a super fast car, but it's down on straight line speed, so it generates the lap time through the braking and the cornering. And um, the um, you know the new generation cars were coming out, and we felt that with with these cars, the Merc. Um, the BM, the McLaren, the Audi, um, we felt that the Ginetta was was no longer going to be the, the best car to be in. So we decided we were going to switch. Um, we did our due diligence. At the time, the McLaren was um, was not so reliable um, and it wasn't an attractive proposition for us. Uh, the Audi, I had my heart set on, if I'm being honest with you. I went and tested it and I didn't it just didn't resonate with me i didn't strike a mm. chord um didn't really enjoy driving it actually uh the merc wasn't available to test so i tested the bmw and for the moment i made contact they were super keen super professional um and i went and drove the car and and it was just mega i loved it uh you know it was a, it was a felt like a race car uh they were very keen to get a couple of bmws into the uk and it it all just made sense, and hmm. um, here we are, three years later, having run run those cars for the last three years and been involved with the M sixes, and we're part of the BMW family now. So, Tom Stalker asks the the, the question that now that BMW M four is 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 getting on a bit in in terms of race car years, is there another GT four car that that you would consider? Or are you now? If, if if we cut Century open, is there uh, the the M Sport colours running down its spine like a stick of rock? Um, I mean, we we're invested with BMW because we own two cars. Mm-hmm. If someone approached us and they wanted to run us to run an Aston or a McLaren, you know, it was customer customer car. 
yeah, we'd do it. Um, you know, we don't, we're very, we're very, one thing we, you know, and this, this goes back to the whole the switch from Janetta is we were a little bit concerned we had all our eggs in one basket. Um, and, you know, we proved we can diversify with the BMs winning it in the first year. And if we have to diversify to another car, then we will do. Um, but preference right now is as long as the car's competitive and as long as we can fill the seats, you know, the BM is 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 our preferred route for sure. I mean, the one that's that's screaming at me, there is only one in the UK at the moment, and it is in our race series. <laughs> Given your love for the MR2, would, would would a pair of Supras not not tickle your fancy at some point potentially? Yeah, I I um I I love them. They they're amazing little cars. I'm very fond of them. Um, we're in a quite strange dynamic at the minute with 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 GT racing where these junior programs are rife and you know it's become a usp for race teams um and you know one thing which we've been up against the last couple of years is um you know other manufacturers pushing junior programs a lot more than say bmw does um which is re- relatively frustrating given that the bmw junior program is probably by far and away the best one out there um it's just not very well marketed and 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 if I was to switch manufacturers, that would be high on my list of um, of, of reasons to do so. Um, and, and unfortunately, the Toyota doesn't look like it has any form of junior program. So whilst I love the car, it, it probably wouldn't really be uh, a consideration for me. So the next question has fallen to me as uh, I've heard Nick's opinion several times. <laughs> so, And I'm slightly less... Um, forceful in my opinion shall we say but Chris Humphreys has asked what do you think of the new GT3 M4 um, uh, well I quite like it um, it's certainly grown grown on me it looks very aggressive um, I actually was actually due to go and see it next Wednesday um, but unfortunately the quarantine rules in Germany have, have meant that if, if I go that I have to quarantine in Germany um, so I can't go to see it, but um, the, the static photos when I first saw it, I was a little bit unsure. But when I saw the promo video they did, I really, really like like the look of it. And it, it, it it's controversial um, whether you like it or you don't like it. People are talking about it. Yeah. Um, I just I just hope that you know the the Z4, you know, was was one of the best GT3 cars out there, and everybody wanted to drive it. And I hope the M4 has that kind of um, feel to it. Um, mm. whether it does or doesn't is yet to be seen yeah it definitely seems to be a bit of a, a marmite car and it's so hot. far it's been uh, a point of much discussion and much editing on my part <laughs> we've uh, had that discussion uh, but on a related note tom stalker also asks are you considering coming back to gt3 i'd love to um i really would um it's not a decision that we make uh you know we don't just decide to do it we're in the background uh under the radar we're all you know looking for that opportunity to move move into gt3 and last year was was a shame that it wasn't a two-year program so i think this year two would have been you know a lot better for us mm. um but you know if i find find a driver who wants to to do it then then we'll be back and if not uh i guess we'll stick to the programs we're doing currently Okay, next up, moving moving away from the GT3, um, I will point out they're on the M4 GT3. I started off as a, oh, they crashed it into the ugly tree. 
it's growing on me now. It's going to be very livery sensitive, but the road car with a number plate on it doesn't look anywhere near as gopping as a road car without a number plate on it. So, yeah. Uh, <laughs> so it's, it's 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 going to depend what you put there. Perhaps the uh, the driven sponsorship from from British GT should go there quite big. Yeah, it's. Um, I mean, they've made a feature out of well. Uh, you know, they're not grills on the race car, are they? They're air, air intakes, but mm. um, they've made a feature of it by putting a um, you know red red outing on it. But uh, yeah, it's different, isn't it? And that's the thing, you know, when these new cars come out, people don't like change, um, creatures of habit. And this new car, no one likes it, but it'll be the norm soon. And uh, and, and and yeah, um, yeah. I guess. I guess it's nice to sort of have such a reaction, whether it be positive or negative. It's mm. it, it's it's attention drawn to it. Yeah. yeah. So our next question here comes from from Gary Courtney, and he's asking if there was one race that you would dream of competing worldwide, what would it be, and in what car would you do it? Um, I'd love to do another Bring Twenty Four and GT Three for sure. Um, the Mon 24 hour would also be pretty cool. Um, and if you're going to do it, P1 for sure. So, the, so you're, you're preferring the 24 hour racing then? Yourself? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I guess if it was, um, if it was real fantasy land, F1, <laughs> because that's the pinnacle. Um, but yeah, I, I think to be honest, at this this stage in my in my life, that would be my that would be my my two two go to races. Something like an Indy 500 would be, would be amazing to do, but um, but yeah. yeah. More you think about it, more options you think about. Yeah. So next question comes from Jade Amflet, who asks, what's your favourite UK track? Brands GP, I would say. Brand, yeah, it'd be a toss-up between Brands GP uh, and Alton Park International. Okay, we'll we'll find out the why when we get to the quickfire questions. So, um, we're we're back to our good friend Mister Tuck now. Yeah, uh, he's he's asking, do you think that GT four will be more populated next season? I hope so. Um, yeah, we've we've been part of British GT since two thousand and nine, and we've gone from cars classes uh, with sort of four cars up to you know 16 17 cars and obviously this year gt4 has been hit hard with the uh the covid um thing uh and i really hope that next year it bounces back <clears throat> i think it will you know we've got a good level of interest and um one thing that worries me a little bit about gt4 is that budgets are getting high um to the point where there's not too dissimilar in 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 price with GT3, um, and and I'm worried that could go the wrong way for GT4. But um, you know, right now, as we speak, um, you know, things for next year are looking re- relatively buoyant for us. So I hope it is for everybody else, and we can get back to a strong a strong grid. Is the the budget thing? Is that? inflation in the in the price of the race cars that's causing that or because um, i mean you need the same number of guys to work on a gt4 car as you do a gt3 car you still need a truck driver and the trailer and and, and the tractor unit etc and the guys calling the strategy those costs will be the same no matter what you're running aren't they 
Yeah, I mean, there's there's some fixed prices you can't get around, um, but you know, nowadays the cars are two hundred thousand pound. Bloody hell! Uh, yeah, or, or euros, which is probably about the same. Um, say exchange rate at the moment. I don't think you get much change. No, precisely. And then you're insuring the car for you know you don't you never insure the cars on track for full value because you premiums be huge. So you're insuring a GT3 and a GT4 car for the same value. So that that's the you know that 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 insurance price is the same. Tires are basically the same. The amount of fuel it uses is very similar. As you say, team costs are the same. Um, you know the real savings between the two budgets is um, you know your actual physical finance charge, where the the GT three is is you know say three hundred and fifty grand, and and your kilometer charge. Um, so what that means is the budget actually isn't isn't too different between a GT three and a GT four, and you know some people's view might be that well if I'm going to spend X on on you know GT four, but for a little bit more I can do GT three, they might just choose that option instead. Um, so it's it's in a weird phase at the minute, and I hope that it doesn't, it doesn't go the wrong way. Would that potentially make GTC more attractive as a proposition, though? I know SRO are working on that, uh, but because um, the GTC cars are cup cars, they're, they're they're cheaper than a GT3 car, aren't they? Yeah, I, it all seems a bit sort of samey samey to me. I think there's, you know, we probably need some some clear, de- de- you know, GT4 and GT3 as a as a speed differential work very very well. Um, I've yet to see a GTC, you know, on on a British GT grid. I think um, we had one at Alton Park last year, didn't we? We had Michael Igo, but he was very new. Right. I don't. Oh yes, I do. He remember. ran that the was Porsche at Alton and then turned out the Lamborghini the next time. That's it. Carrera Cup car, yeah. Mm. Um, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, is there room for it? Well, there is another grid, grid at the minute, but uh, I don't know how that will work. Yeah, you know, it's t- it will take time to see. But I would imagine the GTC probably probably is going to be somewhere in between the GT4 and the GT3 budget wise, um, which isn't isn't such a good thing to be honest. Uh, as I say, uh, GT4 could do with coming down. You know. A chunk of cash, I think. That's my view on it. Because the entry fees aren't drastically different either, are they? No, no, it's very small. When you when you really boil it down, there's not a lot of difference between the two at all. I mean, from the team point of view, do the cars have a a better percentage of residual value? Will you get more for a used GT3 car than a used GT4 car? Yeah, I think it's I think it's probably you know a new GT3 car is what nowadays four hundred and fifty thousand euros like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and you know a used one depending on the age of it you know it, was, it will be as, as cheap as sort of two hundred and fifty thousand euros and GT four two hundred thousand euros new and probably looking at one hundred twenty hundred thirty thousand euros when when they come to be sold so I think the depreciation as a percentage is probably very very similar. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think uh, I don't think it's much to, to to sort of split between those two. Again, getting off topic, but into interesting discussion that you don't tend to find many team managers that are willing to discuss this sort of thing with with media people. So <laughs> I'm sort of, oh, I'm Maybe learning stuff. Wrong. Sorry? Maybe that's where I'm going wrong. <laughs> uh, you're making friends in the media and that's always useful. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> Our next question is from Karen Riley, who asks, what's your preferred role, driver or team boss? Uh, driver, for sure. But I do enjoy the team boss side of it. It has its moments. Nice and, and simple one there. 
the final question, and I'm beginning to recognise a name here. <laughs> Can you guess who's asking this one? <laughs> yes, well, it isn't Ben Green. <laughs> Are there any other championships you'd be, be looking to enter, he asks? Um, we're always open. You know, we have a... I look at it with, with sort of two heads on, really. Um, one is we have the core core business model which is you know the two championships we've been doing forever and and whilst we have people coming to us to do them i'm quite reluctant to stop doing them um um you know a little bit if it, if it works don't if it, if it ain't broke don't fix it mm-hmm. and then and then there's the ambitious side of me which you know i'd love to go and do le mans 24 hour with the team or go and do bln you know nurburgring 24 hour um you know, and 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 if opportunities come up, I'm I'm pursuing them all the time. Um, you know, I put a proposal out just the other week to do uh, Le Mans um, Le Mans Cup uh, mm-hmm. in a GT3. Um, you know, and, and realistically, out of ten proposals you send out, maybe one of them will come off. So mm-hmm. it's just waiting for the right opportunity to come along and not forcing it. Um, you know, when it's ready, when the opportunity comes, we'll be ready for it and. Um, where that leads, I don't know yet. Um, but yeah, we shall mm-hmm. see. Well, I'm sure all our listeners appreciate you taking the time to answer their questions. No worries at all. We Thanks certainly do. So the last section of our interview is our quickfire questions. Okay. So we will kick off with the best and worst car you've ever driven, and that can be a road or a race car. And why? Um, best car would be the MR2 because it's mental. Um, <laughs> and worst car would be a Renault Espas, because I've owned two of them and they basically haunt my life. Um, they just didn't want to do anything other than break down. So I just hate them because of that. Dare we ask why you went for a second one if the first did that? Well, um, well, I don't know, if I'm being honest. I used to love the look of, of, of them. Um, the sort of early two thousand. Don't ask me why. It's a bit mental, but uh, we had to get a crew bus, and I just loved the look of the early early Renault Espace, um sort of the early two thousands. Um, quite curvy, mm. quite sporty looking. With and the thought, integrated wing mirrors, yeah, the ones that yeah, yeah, inter- the little, yeah. little vents on the back of them. And mm. um, I bought this one, and I had made it fifty miles home, and it already thrown a cam belt off. That should have been an omen, but no, I stuck with it. And then when that eventually died a, a slow, bitter death, I then bought another one. Um, oh, I don't know why, and that that had, that had the same effect. So, see, this rather, is strange. This is strange. Sorry. Those French cars are usually very mechanically reliable. It's the electrics that are terrible. Yeah, well, the second one we had, the electrics didn't want to work. Um, so the, at one stage, Central Motorsport was looking more like a Renault bus repair unit than um, a race team. But yeah, you, so. you are talking to the man here that's owned a Citroen AX, a Citroen C3, a Citroen C5, and is about to order a Citroen C3 to teach in. So you're a real glutton for punishment then, aren't you? They look <laughs> fantastic. They, they, they look so creative and fantastic. And if you're going to sit there and wait for the recovery truck to turn up, you might as well have something nice to look at. Yeah, you, I mean the espace, the second espace that we had, uh, you know, for its age, had all the knobs and whistles. Um, it was actually unbelievably advanced for its time, but just wasn't very well executed. My mother had a Safran, and that was a lovely car. It had more tech on it than my brother's Jag at the time. 
Brilliant. It was just a mechanical disaster area. Yeah. <laughs> Next up then, your best and worst circuit to drive. And again, we'd love to know why. Best would be, yeah, Nürburgring, Norschleife. Because again, it's it's just, there's nothing else like it. Um, it's scary, it's fast, it's bumpy, it's, you know, your car takes off two or three times throughout the lap. It's just bonkers. Worst, I think, um, yeah, a place called No, Pop- no Problem Raceway in uh, Louisiana, which was just a cobbled together raceway. I had a drag strip as part of it. Mm-hmm. And um, I tested a Formula BMW around there. Um, and it was, yeah, wasn't very, wasn't very good. Ironic naming, do you think? Or yeah, crazy, really. No problem, raceway. Small town America racetracks not getting good review on this show. <laughs> yeah, it's one of those ones, isn't it? I think yeah, we we really are spoiled in the UK for um for our racetracks. Um, and uh, when you go to uh, you know other countries and, and like you say small town america it makes you realize how good you got it over here i think i can't remember who it was but there is this circuit out in texas or arizona i think it was and he basically described it as seabring without the attraction (laughs) (laughs) it's it's, so yeah american provincial racetracks not doing particularly well here (laughs) So moving on, the next question that we have in our quickfire questions is your ideal three-car garage. So your dream road car, your dream race car, and your dream play car. Uh, well, good question. <laughs> I, I, I've always loved to want to have a Toyota Supra. That's always been a bit of a dream car, so I'd have that as the play car. Um, road car would be... Oh, I don't know, Nissan GTR, something like that. And race car. I always loved the old um, Corvette um, GT3 car with the LS7 in it. They were they were mega, just just by the sound of them. So I'd say that C6 or the C7. Uh, either C6, I would say probably. It was a be- it was a better looking car, the C six, wasn't it? Yeah, I just remember going to Le Mans back in twenty twelve, and that car just sounded like hell, hell on earth. <laughs> I loved it. I, w- I was sat there thinking he's going to say something along the lines of the devil coming past me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the last of our quickfire questions. Uh, originally came from our friends at thecheckeredflag.co.uk, uh, but we liked it so much as a question, it's uh, slipped into our regular questions. You've been given an elephant. You can't give it away and you can't sell it. So what would you do with the elephant? Um, I would, yeah, keep it as a pet and feed it, feed it peanuts. <laughs> Make friends with it. It's the second time we've heard it. Yeah. And it's nice to have somebody do the normal thing. With yes, an elephant. I was just thinking. <laughs> Someone normal with an elephant. <laughs> yeah. Why wouldn't you? Do you have a particularly large garden? 
Um, no, we've got some trees in the back garden, so we could eat those. Um, and yeah, I'm, just, I'm an animal lover, so <laughs> well, I have an elephant as a pet. If I couldn't take it back to the wild, then that'd be the next best thing. I've got, I've got a theory here. You might end up very good friends with your local garden centre. <laughs> yeah, because grow. even even a small elephant can get through a lot of tree. I think. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, nice relaxing elephant chilling in in, in the back garden. <laughs> yeah, it'd be interesting, wouldn't it? Yeah, when you get to do the cartoon of that one, Sarah, tree Hawaiian there. shirt. Tree deck chair, Hawaiian shirt, cocktail on the table, yep. yeah? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm going to thank you very much, Nathan. It's been wonderful talking to you um, both times. No, <laughs> it's, well, it's been absolutely you fantastic. Me. Thank Enjoy you for, for, for coming back and doing it again. Uh, we are so sorry to, to take up yet more of your time, but it has been thoroughly enjoyable again. No problem. I've enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the British GT Fans Show. Remember, the show's for personal use only and must not be rebroadcast, redistributed or used in any other form without permission. For more information about this, please visit our website, www.bgtfshow.co.uk or contact us via our social media, at BGTFshow.co.uk.